Hello and welcome and happy hump day. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, and I'm David Cooper. This is the only show where no one's listening. No one cares where every episode's the last episode. Is today's guest Dr. Daniel K. Riskin? Oh my, it is. Dan is a science expert. He's an evolutionary biologist, a science educator, and a bunch of other things that involve the word science that I don't know what they are. He specializes in bats, but he also specializes in warming my heart by coming on this show and talking science stories. So let's jump right into him. But first, I got faxes to send people. David Cooper. Is my computer trouble that I forgot the meeting? <laughs> well, when you weren't there and I started the Zoom and it said waiting for a host to start the meeting, I thought, okay, he probably missed it because this is not the normal day that we tape. And then you sent me an email. So then I know that you got an email that said, Dan Riskin's logged in. And then you probably, wherever you are, went, oh, God. And so then you sent me an email and say, I'm having computer trouble. But I don't believe you. <laughs> What if I told you that was exactly what happened? <laughs> well, that's okay. I had some time to eat most of my lunch, and I'll just put the rest here aside. I feel terrible. Oh God, whatever. It's all good, man. I don't know. It's I don't know what's with me with you. I no, oh, I love it. I love every second of it. I mean, I, I guess it was only seven minutes late. Seven minutes, no big deal. And you were to the Zoom meeting. Dan Riskin has joined your Zoom meeting. One minute early. You were one minute early. No, you were exactly on time. Well, is one minute early. Yeah, seven minutes late is exactly on time. You were eating carrots, though. And honestly, now you get to spend less time with me. So it's really a win-win for everyone. It is a win-win-win. I'm totally thrilled to be here. No, I turned my fuck... I, okay, here's what happened. <laughs> I saw your email. I said, oh, shit. I would have been on time. I've turned on my Mac. I get the system update thing. Oh, no. That is a computer problem. So you were having a computer problem. So I did not lie to you, but in a sense, it's exactly what happened. You misled me. Yes. But you didn't. I wasn't misled, so you didn't really mislead me either. It's like I watched this sci-fi show that's pretty good. Apparently, the books are better, but I didn't read them. The Expanse, okay? I watched season one through, let's say, four. I don't remember how many seasons there are. Let's say there's five. I watched season one through four with Miranda. And while she's sleeping in bed, I sneakily watch season five on my phone while she's sleeping next to me. And then she confronts me. She said, did you watch this without me? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I did not watch it without you. That is a lie. Well, she was in the bed with me, Dan. Oh, I see what you did there. Very good. All right. I give you the points. She was so upset. Not just that I watched it without her, that I lied. I'm like, well, I didn't lie. I just intentionally was dishonest. Yeah, if anybody was lying, it was her lying down next to you. Yeah. 
I should have said that. I think I would have won the argument. <laughs> yeah, I think that that would have really turned her around in terms of her attitude about the whole situation, in my experience as a part, member of a partnership. Yeah. All right. I was late. I'm sorry, Dan. Speaking okay. of shows, do you, do you watch What We Do in the Shadows? Yeah, of course. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's filmed in Toronto. It's set in Staten Island, though. I know, I know. I've taken to just yelling bat at random times and then a couple seconds later saying human form and it's <laughs> <laughs> and Shelly thinks it's funny, which is good. Um, the kids are asking what I'm doing, but I can't tell them too much because if they know there's this show that makes me laugh, they're going to go out of their way to see it. And there are things in that show that they can't see yet. So I can't tell them. Is it that inappropriate though? Because when I was a kid and I watched stuff like that because my parents didn't give a shit. I was the youngest of four. They were like, go to a porno movie. I don't care. Right. My, my parenting style is slightly different from that. <laughs> no, but I wouldn't go to the quote porno movie. But when I would watch these adult themed films when I was seven, eight, nine on TV at the movie theater, I don't know, my siblings would watch them. I just really wouldn't get it. And there's all these films as an adult that I'm like, oh, do you remember when the uh, do you remember the episode where they have a sex party and then they bring in a virgin and everybody's all excited to feed on the virgin, but then sort of there's this big reveal that the virgin is spoiled at the party and and that happens in front of the camera. Do you remember that? I don't, but I may as well. Yeah. So they've brought in a gimp and they've brought in this virgin and everybody's excited to feed off the blood of the virgin, but then right when they're about to feed on him, they find him uh, having sex with the gimp and. It's something my kids can't see yet. I get that. Someday. I'm just saying that if they saw it, I don't think it would like scar them for life. They wouldn't understand it and they would move on with their lives. Sure. But it would come up in therapy. It would be a conversation point. It would. I just, it's not worth it for them to hear them bat <laughs> human form and think, oh, I get it now. I saw that show. It's not worth it for that. Fair enough. However. I'm sending my therapist's kids to college. So, you know, you're not just supporting your family when you mess up your kids. You're supporting a therapist's family. You're right. That's sort of an outgroup thing. I, I've been selfish. You have. Which story do you want to hit today? I The first one that you sent me about the mind-controlling parasite was fascinating, but I really wanted to learn about these orcas. Okay, let's talk about the orcas because that is a really good one. Unless you want to just fuck around. I mean, I, I'm... No, no, no. Let's talk about the orcas. Um because it is uh, one of the most interesting stories I've come across in a long time. Because the, the whole idea of animals and humans getting along, like in a Disney movie kind of way, like the deer comes up and says, hey, I hurt my leg. And then the human's like, oh, I'll help your leg. And then years later, the human falls down a well and a deer pulls them out of the well. Like that, really? But there are species that have these relationships with humans. And so the best known is something called a honey guide. And a honey guide is this bird that lives in Africa. I don't exactly know where, but I want to see it someday. And this thing feeds on honeycombs and from, from beehives, but it's very hard for the bird to extract those itself. And so what the bird does is it looks for a beehive and then it makes a special call for humans. Wow. And it only makes this call for humans. It doesn't make it for other birds. And when it makes this call, the humans know to go look there and they go and they find the honey. They, they break open the tree. They get the, the, the honeycomb out of this thing they find a big source of food. And they, the bird ends up getting some. They, they put some out for the bird in the way it's explained in the literature. I don't know if that's always true, but certainly there's got to be spillage at, at the very least. And so the bird ends up getting some food and it leads people to uh, this, this source. And so the, the Latin name for this bird is indicator, indicator. And it's, it's <laughs> called the honey guide. And it's a real thing. 
thing. And so I've always thought it was a one-off. How long has this been happening? Happening Is this like a prehistoric uh, relationship between humans and this bird? Yes. Before European science journals, I mean, this is a, this is something that happened between the, the communities that live where this bird is and the bird itself. And it's thought to have been at least long enough for them to develop their own special call for people. So I kind of thought that was, you know, domestication is a different thing. Like when you take dogs and you feed them and they become your pets, like, or, or, you, or even if you feed like chickens or whatever, that feels like a different thing. And it's captivity. You're trapping that animal. It's not like a kind of symbiotic, oh, we'll associate for this one task, but then we'll go off to being wild kind of relationship. Exactly. And with the honey guides, they're, they're living off on their own in the trees. They're not domesticated at all. They're still a wild bird, but they have a special call just for humans. And so, again, I thought this was kind of the one-off, but then I found out about these killer whales off the coast of Australia. And so this is an historical account. It doesn't happen now, but it happened up until the late 1920s. And it's in the written documents of European settlers in Australia. So there are photographs of boats with orcas breaching next to them, like the the big fin of the orca next to a boat. Um, And there are stories that are recounted in writing from that time by European settlers, but the oral traditions carry this back much further. And Australian uh, Aborigines communities have oral traditions that go back incredibly far and have reliable stories that can be linked to geological events that are like 40,000 years ago. And so it's easy to dismiss oral traditions as though it's playing telephone at a party and it must just be wrong at some point. But um, these are stories that are passed down reliably and well. And so people should put confidence. Uh, This is the, the sort of conclusion from a lot of studies on this stuff is that you should listen to these oral traditions because there's a lot of great information that does get carried accurately from them. And oral traditions do talk about a relationship between orcas and humans. And here's how it went is there's this place. um, It's called Twofold Bay now, um, but it, it had a different name back in the day. And it's on the coast of Eastern Australia on the right side of the continent. And the Thawa people of the Yuin nation would sing to the orcas and the orcas uh, had a relationship with them. And so the orcas and the humans hunted together and they hunted for big baleen whales. And so what would happen is that an orca would, or the the pot of orcas would come in, they'd say they want to alert the humans to the fact that there was a big whale that's worth hunting. So they would slap their tails on the surface to get the attention of the whalers. The people would get into their boats, they would head out, the whales would lead, these orcas would lead them toward the target big whale. Um, In fact, there are even stories of them grabbing the ropes that are hanging from these boats and pulling the boat along to get there in the right direction. And then once they got to the whale, they would hunt together. And so the humans would harpoon these, uh, these whales and uh, the, the orcas would pull on the ropes and help to, to or at least try to help uh, hold down these, these whales and stop them from getting away. And then when, when the thing was finally killed, the orcas would eat the tongue and the lips and humans would eat would get the rest of it presumably bring it back to to shore and and take it apart and uh this was called the law of the tongue that the orcas always got to eat the tongue and the lips and i don't know i mean what's interesting is if you look at um recent records of orcas killing blue whales they eat the tongue and the lips that's what they eat anyway so whether this was like humans saying oh you can have this now or whether it was just the whales doing their thing and the humans saying this is uh the way we've worked it out um that's up for debate but certainly 
this was a relationship that went on until at least the 1920s. And uh, in 1928, uh, whaling around then, whaling stopped, humans stopped doing it, and the orcas stopped coming around. But in the 30s, this one orca that they knew as an individual called Old Tom washed up dead on the beach. And so they put him in a museum. And the recent study that brings all this to light is that uh, recent uh, scientists looked at the DNA of this washed up whale, its skeleton, and they tried to match its DNA to other pods of killer whales around the world, and they can't find one that matches. So it looks like this was a special population of orcas that was specially, you know, had, had evolved on its own, and, and who knows how far back this relationship with humans went, but they are no longer with us. They don't exist anymore. They vanished because they stopped, humans stopped killing whales with them? Like, what is the reason for the species to go away? It's hard to say. Don't know, but it's just not there anymore. And so maybe it was that this was such an important part for them and how they made their living that when the humans stopped doing it, it, it wiped them out. It's more likely that the killer whales sort of, uh, you know, moved on and, and just their population, just that, that that lineage just stopped and other lineages got the, got the spots. It's really not clear what sort of the cause is for them disappearing. Or maybe they intermingled with the uh, orcas that didn't work with humans and then kind of, you know, their DNA after a couple generations went away way that is what they disproved they don't find evidence for that so so the, it looks like that lineage just stopped it's not around anymore that lineage is dead end no intermingling which is uh what you can say to your kids instead of uh, gimp sex yes yes to bring it around full circle and there's there's a quote so what's really cool is there's a real movement in science right now to involve for, if you're going to talk about something that has first nations connotations those those people for whose community you're talking are about whose community you're talking should be co-authors they should be part of the process and so why the fuck not yeah yeah and and it, the thing is that for uh, one belief is that in a lot of these communities when you take a story from that community and you use it you're taking without giving right? You're not, it's very, it's sort of a colonial vestige. It's like taking, going in and taking samples and then walking away with them or going in and getting their help to, to get a bunch of work done, but then just leaving and, and leaving the mess for them to clean up. And so to take all these stories and to take this, this information without giving back in some way is, is what scientists are trying to move away from by, by and large. And so this one, um, one of the co-authors is a member of the the people uh, who live in that place and his parents have uh, ancestrally done this relationship with the whales. And so he can talk about it from personal experience. And it's just a cool to see how the scientific literature is moving to bring those stories in. And so there's a paragraph um, and I'll just read a little bit of it. He says, my people had a long lasting friendship with the Beowa in Eden. Beowa is the, the word they use for orcas, uh, especially old Tom. My nan, Catherine Holmes, named Brearley, told us about her great-grandfather, Budgingbro, who, along with other Tawa, would swim with old Tom, holding on to his dorsal fin. My ancestors were never hurt or injured. She said that Budingbro's father, a blind man, would walk along the beach, singing to the Beowas. The Beowas would follow him along the beach, communicating back and forth with him. It was a strong friendship between these Beowas and my people. So that powerful story is in the scientific paper it's written below the abstract as a statement about what this means to to this individual and so it's just it's a it's a very moving story it's very cool to see this connection with nature and it's also neat to see how science itself is evolving to be able to tell these stories in a way that would have been impossible even 20 years ago or even 10 years ago perhaps i'm kind of amazed by all this but in some sense i'm not terribly surprised by it because orcas are incredibly intelligent so yeah. uh, the idea that you know they would do that and and a subspecies or a species or 
Yeah, or just a, a subpopulation. I mean, where, where, how you split for a species is sort of, sort of up in the air for different species. But you're right. It is not surprising that they're capable of it. I think it's cool that it used to happen. It does bring up lots of questions about what the potential is for the future. Um, but it's it's just a really cool story. And it just it it's really sort of powerful. And I love that it's amazing to me that the story was hidden for so long. Like, how does nobody know about this? It should be the thing everybody talks about with killer whales. And the the other really weird thing is killer whales have never killed a human in the wild ever anywhere. There's no documented case of that. And they should because they kill everything. They're called killer whales. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like they kill what they do to sea lions and seals and otters. Like they beat the tar out of them. They torture them. They drown them. They like play with them for like eight hours before they finally eat them. They like, practice they teach their young to hunt by like catching it and then putting it back on the ice flow and then catching it again and putting it on the ice flow and letting the kids try like they are so mean to marine mammals and to fish and to other things that they eat and yet a human in a boat or in the water no they don't eat them it's interesting isn't that curious it is you know correlation is not causation or whatever i can't make a bold claim but i can pose i don't know a thought experiment or or an idea like maybe they kind of remember us and we've worked with them for thousands of years, and, and that's why they don't mess with us. It's possible. I mean, it's possible that there are things bred, like there are things instilled into them by natural selection, uh, experiences that have shaped their behavior. But I think, I keep thinking it's just a matter of like one of them trying and being like, oh, wait, these are delicious. And then once <laughs> they once one figures it out, they'll be like, you know what, try this. Because they do teach each other stuff. And so lately, killer whales in Europe have been biting the motors of boats and wrecking people's yachts and they even sunk a ship. And, uh, and they didn't used to do that. But now that they're into it, they're teaching each other. And now they're all kind of having fun biting boats. And so I feel like it's just a matter of time before one orca is like, yeah, well, that actually tasted pretty good. Yeah, but then they'll realize how annoying we are. You know, they're just like, oh, it's not worth it. If we kill one of them, they're going to come after us with their spears and their harpoons, those annoying bastards. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like sharks, like if you were swimming and a shark wanted to get you, yeah, like it's not a very complex animal. You just kind of got away from it. Like they're scary. But like if a killer whale was hunting you, like, you know, it would like, oh, he's in that boat. I'll follow that boat. Like he would watch you on the shore like a killer whale if they really wanted you dead. Wasn't there a horror movie about a killer whale killing people? Probably. Yeah, probably. The killer whale kills. Yeah. I just made that up, but it could be. Yeah. I mean, we're really annoying to kill. For example, my brother's hunting right now. If he kills a duck, all he has to do is go to the carcass and then he can eat it. But if he kills a human, like people are really annoying about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, people get worried. The one that you've killed doesn't make as much noise. It's true. But they often have friends and family. And no one's going to let you kill another one after you kill the first one. Unless, you know, unless you don't get caught. But a lot of people get caught. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, there is, again, there's the whole true crime thing. People, that's a whole booming industry in TV right now. That's what I'm coming up against a lot is I keep pitching these TV shows to people and being like, hey, we should do a TV show about this. We should do a TV show about that. Like even about killer whales. Like if I went and said, we should do a story about killer whales and people interacting with killer whales, I'd be like, yeah, we need a true crime story. Because that is that is what TV is all about right now. Those are the only shows that people are buying right now because people watch them. We can only pray. And only hope that you can have the great fortune of being part of a community where a very nasty murder happens. So hopefully in the bat science community, there's like a conspiracy and a crime and a murder. No, 
I can't even joke that. I yeah, I, I get you, but it's just so it makes me feel so dirty. Like it's all the parts of TV I don't like, and I have a lot of friends who like used to work with me on science documentaries, and they're stuck like interviewing people about their their kids who were killed and stuff, and they're just their souls are dying. It's just like they used to do like oh, there's hope for the future with hydrogen fuel, and now it's like tell me about the time. Yeah, I, it's just really sad. Yeah, it would kill you. It really would. It really would. And man, I. I mean, there are a lot of things I like about my job, but if it was, if it started getting like that, I would just be like, I'm going back in the woods to catch some bats and put tags on them and find out where they live because I can handle that. It's kind of mean to the bats, don't you? Do you think they mind having the tags on them animals? We make the tags fall off after a while. They're fine. It's very nice of you. All right, fine. Let's talk about the spooky brain parasite. I guess we can talk about the woman who had the spider in her ear. That's... The, the woman with the spider in her ear is a quick one. A woman had a spider in her ear <laughs> dan that's why we pay you the big bucks <laughs> it was a it was a jumping spider so she lived in uh taiwan i believe and she had a jumping spider uh she was 64 and she had a noise in her ear and it was bugging her and she could have sworn there was something in there so she went to the doctor and she did have something in there and so the doctor used a little mini vacuum cleaner and sucked it out and it's gone and she's totally fine but a lot of people don't like having spiders in their ears and so they hear that story and no that sounds like my personal nightmare yeah it is not what i want to have happen i when i was catching bats in trinidad i did have so when you wear a headlamp in the forest in the rainforest a lot of insects swarm your face and i did have a very small like gnat i think it was maybe a gnat or something like a very small fly that went in my ear and I couldn't get it out. And so I spent, fortunately we had some, uh, some ethanol that we used, I forget what, to clean things, I think, to, to disinfect. Um, so I just like poured ethanol in my ear and it stopped buzzing after that. And I never saw it. I, presumably it's not there anymore, but who knows, maybe it's growing into a giant something. Maybe it's feeding a spider that lives in my ear that I don't know about, but uh, it's not very fun to have a thing in your ear. No, especially not a spider. Yeah. Now this next story makes you think I'm glad it's just spiders in my ear because it's what happens. There's something called a Gordian worm. Have you clicked on this video yet? Uh, no, but it reminds me of like cordyceps. It reminds me of uh, what's that cat parasite that infects humans. Toxoplasma. Toxoplasmosis or whatever. This is a visually stunning parasite because what it does is it goes inside a praying mantis or a grasshopper. You're clicking it now. I want to. I want you to give you a reaction video. Let's. I actually did watch it. I remember now. It's kind of blurry and it's like the. It goes from like a mantis to just a dead mantis and a huge worm. Yeah, but if you look closely at the video, they're dipping the mantis's bum in the water. The mantis is struggling to get out, and this worm is bursting out of its bum hole, and the worm is bigger than the praying mantis is. It's longer. It's freaky. Imagine if you jumped in a swimming pool and a worm came out of you that was 12 feet long. It's the same thing, except it's a praying mantis instead of you. But it is the bum hole, and I find that disturbing. I am always worried I have a tapeworm when my butthole is uh, ticklish. Does your butthole get ticklish? Does that mean I have a tapeworm? Yes. Oh, boy. No, I don't, no tapeworms don't do that. It's, it's a roundworm that makes your bum hole ticklish. There's a, there's a roundworm that, that comes out of your bum hole while you're sleeping. Ugh. It's weird. It's actually, they're not that bad for you, these tapeworms and roundworms, but they seem like when you have one, you're dead. That's it. That, your life is over. No, they aren't that bad for you. You can live with them for a long time, but they do degrade your health. And they make you vulnerable to other things. Although there is some thought that maybe they actually help your immune system not overreact to things. And so they may prevent things like hay fever and allergies, which is kind of an interesting idea because you're they're, they're suppressing your immune system to protect themselves. And so as a result of your suppressed immune system, you don't have as many allergies. That's kind of a neat idea. So you get the roundworms as a way of treating allergies. But 
I'm not suggesting that I'm not a doctor. Don't do that. But what uh, this roundworm does is it it comes it lives in your in your colon, and then when you're sleeping, it figures out that you're sleeping. How it knows that we don't know, or maybe somebody does, but I certainly don't. And then it comes out of your bum hole and lays eggs all around your bum hole, and then goes back in. And then when you uh, wake up and go about your day, you have just the itchiest bum hole. And so you scratch your bum, you get eggs all over your hands, and then you cook food for your family and you give them the tapeworm. God. So wash your hands before you cook food for your family or after you scratch your bum hole. Yeah. After scratching bum hole and before preparing food, those are two great times to wash hands. <laughs> and if you scratch your bum right before you prepare food, definitely want to wash your hands in that window of time. And maybe use like, you know, some toilet paper to scratch your bum hole. Just, you know, you don't need to use your bare finger. That's great advice. I mean, look, I should have been on the board of health. You should have been. Uh, so this praying mantis, so so this this uh, this thing called a Gordian worm, because when it comes out of the praying mantis, I swear to you, it is the longest thing, and it gets all twisted into knots, like the Gordian knot, and which is this big story from Greek. Yeah, it's an old Greek story. Um, but anyway, so this this uh, this worm is really interesting because it reproduces by. Basically, it gets into things that the praying mantis eats. So it's in a flyer. I don't actually know what the intermediate host is, but it's in something. The praying mantis eats that something and gets this parasite. Then it molts inside the the praying mantis. And now it's a worm and it needs to get to the water. And a praying mantis doesn't live in the water. A praying mantis lives on land. So the the worm manipulates the brain of the praying mantis to make it have this uncontrollable urge to jump in a pool and drown. And it's so weird that it can convince them to do that, but it does that. So in the video I sent you, somebody's just holding the mantis and dipping it in the water. But it's been shown that in nature, these things make things like grasshoppers jump in the pool or make a, a praying mantis jump in the pool. And as soon as they hit the water, like within a couple of seconds, this worm starts bursting out of the bum. It's amazing to see. And that sort of terrifying footage of the thing coming out of the bum is what like I can't stop thinking about. And I still think there's a potential for a great Halloween costume in there somewhere where you like you're at a party and you pretend you're not dressed up or you're praying. You're, you're oh, no, no, you're dressed up as a praying mantis. And then at the party, halfway through the party, you jump into the pool and then a giant worm comes out of your bum. That is that is a that is a great only you would get the costume, though. No one at the party would get it because they're not nerds like you. Well, when I go to parties, it's usually because nerds have invited me because I don't go to the cool people parties. I go, and if you were with biologists and you pulled that out at a party, I think people would be pretty impressed. I'm just saying. And if I was at the party, if you're ever at a party with me and you do that, I will be very impressed. I will give you a standing ovation for sure. Um, the paper that just came out about these Gordian worms is an answer to the question, how the heck do they control the mind of their host? Yeah, I was wondering, what is the mecha? So cordyceps make, I think, ants and stuff get to a high ground so they can explode out of the ant. Toxoplasmosis makes a mouse more likely to enjoy the aroma of cat pee. I might be not 100% correct on those two things, but essentially there are these agents, parasites and what have you, that infect mammals, infect animals, whatever, insects, and control their brains. What is the mechanism? That's what I'm always so curious about. Yeah, so this gets you closer to an answer. And the, the answer is that it makes a whole bunch of, this is when I say it, the worm, inside a mantis, the, when they, they looked at the gene expression in the mantis, when it was uninfected and when it was affected, and it's, it's no difference. But when they look at the worm and what genes it's expressing, when it gets inside a praying mantis, it all of a sudden starts expressing all of these proteins. And the proteins are very, very, very similar to the proteins that occur naturally inside the praying mantis. And what they figured out is that somehow in its evolutionary history, this worm stole copies of a whole bunch of genes from the host 
and made them part of its own DNA so that it can make basically a whole bunch of proteins that the mantis's body recognizes and knows and that already have known you know, jobs inside the mantis's body. It makes all these proteins when it gets inside there. Those proteins go across into the brain and then they do some magic, but it's a little less uh, mysterious what's going on because they're basically the mantis has a whole bunch of proteins that it makes in its own body to control its own behavior. And what this worm is doing is just making a whole bunch of those same proteins, but a little bit different somehow that make the behavior slightly different. But it's it's no wonder that it works because it's like it's it's the right programming language to run that robot. You know what I mean? It's like it's all proteins that are already built by evolution to drive that robot. And now the worm is just making stuff out of those building blocks. So the mantis has DNA, it's got genes, and somehow that gets into the parasite, and then the parasite understands them, it's a part of its own DNA, whatever, and then it, it expresses slightly altered ones, it's a, like a slightly altered protein, did I get that right? And those altered proteins go in the brain, and there's a trigger in the brain for a mantis that says, these pretzels are making me thirsty, and then so it goes to water as a result. Yeah. So, I mean, there's two different pieces. One of those, the first half of your story is sort of an evolutionary way back in the day. So evolutionarily way back in the day, somehow this parasite got a bunch of DNA that came from the mantis and got into the worm's DNA and became part of its DNA that it passed on. And now it's making these proteins and they are subject to natural selection and whatever benefits the worm is going to shape these proteins that the worm is making. And so then over however many hundreds of thousands or millions of years, I don't know the time scale exactly, but a long time, the worm keeps making these proteins that come from a mantis. And at first, they're probably nonsensical. At first, it makes them and the mantis doesn't respond in any particular way. But evolution changes it so that as it starts to make slightly modified versions of those proteins, they start to shift the behavior of the mantis in ways that are benefiting the worms. And you fast forward through evolution to today. And now you've got evolution has finely tuned this mechanism so that the worm expresses exactly the right proteins that have exactly the right effect in their host. And it makes the host go, man, those pretzels are making me thirsty or whatever that great line is. And then they go straight for the water and they drown. Oh, they drown. They drown and the worm comes out of the bum. And what does the worm do? Just hangs around until it finds... The worm comes out and then finds more worms, has sex, and then has, you know, passes on its DNA to the next generation of whatever flying insect they get into next. And then that, you know, like, I, I don't know, but if it's a mosquito or something like that, that's in the pond, they get, they infect those mosquitoes. And then those mosquitoes will go infect other praying mantises. Like basically it just completes the life cycle for this, this uh, parasite. It's terrifying. It's amazing. My bum hole is tickling. Yeah, well, that might be just because you have roundworms, but it is amazing and it is uh, beautiful and it is fascinating and it is terrifying and it is a great Halloween costume. I wonder why we don't have terrifying things like that. I think I think maybe it's because we're smart enough that when one starts to infect us in our community, we get rid of the individual, you know, like like we as early humans 100,000 years ago were like that guy just had a parasite burst out of his bum. We don't want him around. You know, we we like had a say in what kind of illnesses we tolerated. Like, I don't know. Does that make sense? It's not very kind, but we would basically murder individuals who had horrible diseases, hoping that we wouldn't catch them. Well, yeah, I mean, we quarantining is a thing that humans do naturally. There was a lot of discussion about that during COVID, about like where the origin of quarantines come from and like how naturally humans are, you know, if somebody's sick, you stay away from them and you don't want to be close to them. And what we do as a community when people are sick and sort of separating them off. Um, 
And it's been shown that vampire bats do similar stuff when they get sick. They they sort of get cordoned off by the the group. They don't hang out with the other ones as a way of sort of quarantining. Uh, and that that's a paper that came out during the the uh, pandemic, which is kind of fun. Um, but yeah, the I mean, is it because we used to have those things and then we got rid of them thanks to our ingenuity, or is it just a roll of the dice and we didn't happen to have them? Like these really dramatic parasites tend to infect insects and there are millions of kinds of insects. There are only thousands of kinds of mammals. And so if it's a roll of the dice, maybe we just are lucky enough that none of those infect us. But you know, this idea that the cordyceps fungus that which infects so many insects could start infecting people is the whole basis of Last of Us, right? And so is it possible those things could happen? Maybe, maybe. Are there any cordyceps that can infect mammals? I don't think so. And not that I know about. I think cordyceps is, I think that whole thing. I just saw a paper about a cordyceps infecting a spider. And a spider is not an insect. It's a different thing. But it's still, you know, it's still an arthropod. So it's still not that far off the family tree from insects. So it looks like they do have generalizable traits. But still, it's something with an exoskeleton that it's dealing with. So Iron Man should be worried about this. There you go. Yes, Iron Man could get cordyceps. I w- and that would be a very bad zombie. I mean, that would <laughs> be unkillable. Uh, I am I am not betting against evolution. I definitely I I think learning about parasites is kind of important, not just from a self-preservation thing. I also find them fascinating and beautiful, but um it's not a bad idea to just know what their tricks are. What do you think the scariest parasite is that people can get? Well, so it depends. I think the one that's like easily the scariest is the brain-eating amoeba. So there's an amoeba that lives in the soil and it's fine, but if you're water skiing in warm water and it goes up your nose, it can get up to your like the the nerves that pass up towards your brain. It goes up your brain and then it kills you like in a day. And that's a bad one. Um, but I, yeah, it, it depends on the parrot. Like when I think about the parasites that animals get, uh, this one, this Gordian worm is pretty good. Like people should go down the rabbit hole and click on some videos because ugh, ugh. it's just, it's so big when it comes out. You expect when a worm comes out of a grasshopper's bum for it to be, you know, of the scale of something smaller than a grasshopper. You expect it to be like a grain of rice comes out. Ew, gross. But it's not. It's really long. It's like a full on spaghetti noodle. It's just kind of crazy that you can have some proteins floating around in your body that can then control your behavior. Isn't it? On the other hand, how else could you control your behavior? I mean, that's exactly how your body does things, right? But I just mean when AI is smart enough to figure out what those proteins are and just create them, you could be in the airport and some secret agent could inject a needle in you and then you could kill somebody. You know, like I just, I'm glad that sometimes people want to live in the year 3000 and the year 4000, assuming we don't kill all ourselves with some mass extinction event that we cause. I don't know if the future doesn't seem so bright to me, you know, but but I guess at the same time, AI could figure out a, a way to reverse the process very quickly. So you could have like a anti-injected with mind controlling protein device on you. Yeah. Yeah, you could. It's interesting. People always talk about the worst case, like deepfakes, you know, and I'm like, well, no, AI could actually detect whether it is a deepfake or not. You know, like AI might be the solution to AI, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, no, it does. It does. I mean, you think about this all the time, and I, I also try to get my head around it. It's, it's, um, it's interesting, but AI is so much faster, right? Like these things that evolution has done, it's done over hundreds of thousands of millions of years. And for AI, it's like, uh, you know, 20 minutes. It could figure this stuff out. It's, it's kind of, it's loopy. If you want to get really deep, evolution produced us. We produced AI. Computing, high computing power, technology, it's... It's sort of like part of the create. It's like a it's like a bird's nest. 
it's a part of nature. You know, evolution, produ- it's just an inanimate object, the bird's nest, but evolution in some sense produced it. Yeah, they call they talk about the extended phenotype. So phenotype is sort of like what your body's shaped like. So there's your genotype, which is your DNA, and then your DNA makes something, and that's your phenotype. And you might have red feathers or blue feathers or skin or whatever. That's your phenotype. And your behavior is part of your phenotype, but you have an extended phenotype. So the stuff you make as a result of your DNA is your extended phenotype. So bird's nest is the extended phenotype. And so, yeah, you could think about AI as the extended phenotype. And you could also ask yourself, okay, so does this happen every time intelligent life evolves? Like, is it an? Is it inevitable? Is it inevitable that that intelligent life would create computers and thus make its way forward to eventually figuring out machine models that can train themselves, and then inevitable that artificial intelligence evolves? And then, what's the inevitability after that? Does it wipe out the humans that created it, or does does it not? Maybe it's inevitable that it does not, or maybe it's a real roll of the dice. I don't know. I want to get to a point where parasites, you know, biological parasites can infect computers and control their behavior. I mean, that sounds fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Computer bug. But like a literal, like, like a mishmash of, of life and computers. And I mean, it's very science fiction, but is it possible? I don't know. Probably not. It is. I love it. I love that stuff because the weirder you think it, you're like, oh yeah, no, that's real. That's, that's the thing is like a whole bunch of Halloween scary stories, like aliens, that is fully just like a parasite. They're like that, that lay eggs inside your abdomen and then it bursts out of your chest. That is just aliens. That's, that's just what parasites do. That's a parasitoid insect. That's, it's not even new. And so it's always fun when sort of the sci-fi world sort of just goes back to real things from nature and says, oh, here's something scary. Cause it, it often is a, a fundamentally so scary. Which is exactly, as you were saying earlier, what the plot of The Last of Us is, that this horrifying parasite somehow jumps to infect humans, destroys society. Yeah. But the thing is, cordyceps doesn't destroy those insect populations completely, right? They live in a world where that infects some of them, but not all of them. And so there's this stasis that sets up. And sometimes a fungus does wipe a species out, but sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes there's like a, a, a gentle balance. And so you can start to look to the example of nature to understand how hosts live with their parasites and how, and sometimes the parasite is doing it out of self-preservation, right? So like if the parasite's too deadly, it wipes itself out because if all of its hosts are dead, then it can't persist, right? Like cordyceps can't live without insects to kill. And so it can't kill all the insects. And so that puts a limit on how deadly it can be. Yeah. And when you think of like, imagine a creepy crawler face parasite that just crawls over your face and it's like a little spider mite thing and it's going to kill you. Uh, or does, is it like the, the thing that's not even a parasite anymore? We think it might've been at one point, but now we just have face mites that are totally symbiotic that don't harm us at all. Yeah, but they're so gross. Yeah, we probably have them, right? Yeah, probably. I think it's like, I forget. I, I did a story on them a while back. I remember. That's how I know about them. All the grown-ups have them, but but like you're not born with them. So you just like get them on your face as you live. Uh, it's gross. When Aunt Millie gives you a big smooch at the Christmas party. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, Dan, uh, let's, uh, well, let's end it there. Is that all right? Yeah, this has been a fun one. I think we got right into it. It was fun to start with uh, personal attacks on each other's professionalism and then to move to parasites. <laughs> it always is. It always is. I do actually want to address is AI, you know, cybernetics, computers taking over the world, Terminator, Skynet. Is that an inevitable, you know, does life inevitably produce computers and, you know, higher order of technology and artificial intelligence and all this? Um I don't know. I, I just, I had a point on that and then I lost it. Well, one, I'll throw a wrench and totally derail your ability to remember a point. 
by saying that a lot of people think that evolution is always making things better and that evolution is in a direction towards more complexity and, and better behavior and better perfection. But evolution just means change. And sometimes it's a lineage of fish that live in a cave and they have no use for their eyes anymore. And so their eyes get worse over time. And that is evolution, just like the the lineage that lives in the light and its eyes get better over time. It's It's just change. And so you often get like, a big thing that happens in an environment and everything changes and it's not always clear like what the, the the idea of better and worse doesn't really exist and so when you think about ai as this perturbation to the ecosystem of what we all do with our time it, it might be good might be bad but maybe that's just the wrong way to think about it and just to acknowledge it's going to be a big change and to try to just figure out how to sort of position ourselves to survive that yeah i just the inevitability thing like can anyone stop the progress of technology right now? Has anyone ever? Well, I guess if you have if you have enough weapons or enough control of people's minds, like the Catholic Church or the American government with nukes, like yeah, you could probably stop uh, technological advancement. Yeah, but beyond that, like there's this certain inevitability. Like computers are going to get faster, devices are going to get better. You know, AI companies are going to get better at producing these products. It's scary and it's fascinating at the same time. You can't fear it, though, because it's going to happen whether you're scared of it or not. Yeah. I mean, a whole bunch of really rich people writing a letter doesn't slow stop it. We know that now. After they wrote their big letter, like, we should stop doing AI for six months. And then they just kept making AI. Yeah. Who's, who's going to stop them? It's the same with, like, biological experiments, too. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah. I mean, you do have ethics, right? So there is like the idea that we're not going to do certain kinds of experiments because they're immoral. Sure. But you can always get cheaters on those things. So Yeah, like maybe there's a bunker in Madagascar where mad scientists are playing with the human DNA. I don't know. Yeah. All right, Dan. That was my half-baked thought that I wanted to readdress. I liked it. I liked it. The, the inevitability question. And then you can finish this. Yeah, do you have the budget to play Tragically Hip Clips? Because I thought you beat the inevitability of death to death just a little bit. We have the budget to have you quote the song. I believe it's Gord Downey who said, I thought you beat the death of inevitability to death just a little bit. Okay. Imagine what it would sound like if it was playing and we have the budget for that. Yeah, imagine. Which is a song by John Lennon, I believe. Also, we have the budget for you to imagine the lyrics of the song, Imagine. Dan, thank you as always for your time. Thank you for your time, even though you gave it begrudgingly. What are you talking about? Because you didn't show up on time. Yeah, I was late. And, and it's not because I don't respect you. I want you here. I value your time. And so the reason I was curmudgeonly and angry was because I was disappointed in myself. Yeah, that's the best. The best is when you're, I love when we start our conversations with you sort of self-flagellating. It's always good. I'm just like my father. When I'm disappointed in myself, I lash out at others. <laughs> it's a well-adjusted quality that I'm glad I inherited and that I definitely am not in therapy twice a week for. Thanks, man.